This summer we've been in the book of Acts, and last week uh, Matt told us about uh, Paul leaving to return to Jerusalem, and he met in Miletus with the elders from Ephesus. Well, when he got to Jerusalem, there was a rumor started uh, that he had defamed uh, the temple of God by bringing a Gentile into an area where only uh, Jewish uh, males could go. Well, this started a near riot, this rumor, and uh, Paul nearly lost his life. Claudius Lysias, who was the commander of the area, uh, breaks up the riot. He arrests Paul, puts him in chains. In prison, Paul is visited by his nephew who tells him of a plot to take Paul's life. The people who tried to kill him by riot uh, swore that they would get him another way, so they had a plan to ambush Paul. They would ask uh, that Paul be transferred from the prison to a tribunal for a hearing, and on the way they were going to uh, ambush him. Uh, Well, Paul's nephew told Paul. Paul sent the nephew to the commander who whisked Paul away at night under the uh, guard of 470 troops to take him to Caesarea. And he writes a letter to the governor of the area uh, at Caesarea to explain what has happened. Uh, This we pick up in Acts, the 23rd chapter. In the Pew Bible, it's on page 144 in the New um, Testament. Claudius Lysias. Uh, To his excellency, uh, Governor Felix, greetings. Uh, This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I rescued him and brought my troops because I found that he was a Roman citizen. I desired to know more about the accusations against him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusations had to do with questions of their law, and the charges against him would not be worthy of a death sentence or imprisonment. But when I learned of a plot against this man's life, I got him to you at once. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. They say that the third time's the charm. And the Jewish leaders, the opponents of Paul, were certainly hoping that was the case. Twice in the book of Acts, in chapter 21 and 23, they had hoped through uh, causing near riots that Paul's life would be taken. They had circulated the rumor that Paul had defaced the temple of God by bringing uh, a Gentile where a Gentile did not belong. Uh, When that didn't work, they came up with a third plan. The plan was to ask that uh, Paul have a hearing in front of the tribunal. And when Paul was going to be transferred from the prison uh, to the place of the hearing, they planned to ambush uh, Paul and they would take his life that way. They were so serious about it, they swore an oath that they wouldn't eat or drink until Paul was dead. Now, what do we know about these would-be assassins? Uh, The fact of the matter is we know that they were very devout believers in God, the same God we worship. They cared so much for God. They cared so much for God's laws. They cared so much for protecting the temple uh, that they turned against Paul and tried to kill him. They were not only devout, they were willing to risk their life. They were willing to put their life on the line for their beliefs. One of the things they did is they swore an oath not completely unusual in these days, that they would not eat or drink until Paul was dead. So if they didn't kill Paul, they'd be dead. But the other thing was the plan they had to kill Paul was to ambush Paul, a Roman citizen, in the custody of Roman soldiers. If they were successful and they killed Paul, 
they'd be dead because the Romans obviously would not sit for an ambush upon one of their citizens in the custody of their soldiers. So if Paul lives, they die. If Paul dies, they die. They are so serious about their commitment to God that they are willing to risk their life. I was thinking about how to characterize them, and the first thought that came to my mind is, well, they're like suicide bombers. You know, they're like terrorists who who don't care about their own life as long as they can uh, defend and devote themselves to their God, and they don't care who dies along with them. But I really don't think that's the best analogy for these guys. I really think they're more like people who will throw themselves on a live grenade to protect those they love and the values that they care about. They care about the temple and God's presence in the temple so much that they will risk themselves for it. This past week I was going back over a book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer for the book review I do on uh, Sunday and and Tuesdays. And one of the interesting things, it it told the story, if you've seen uh, of the plot against Hitler in 1944 that Bonhoeffer was implicated in. If you've seen the movie Valkyrie, it it talks about it. And and, uh, the character, Colonel von Stauffenberg, played by Tom Cruise, has this bomb and he sneaks it into a meeting with Hitler. And sure enough, the bomb goes off. But unfortunately, they're in a different location than what they planned. And just the way fate would have it, uh, Hitler didn't get killed. So immediately the people implicated in the plot are rounded up. Anybody who knows them are rounded up, and thousands will die because of this failed attempt. But on the very night of this failed attempt, if you remember the movie, they take some of the leading instigators into the courtyard and they put them in front of a firing squad. So it's time for Colonel Van Stauffenberg to go in front of the firing guard, uh, the, the firing squad. They line up to shoot him, and his adjutant, his assistant named Warner, Warner jumps in front of the bullets and takes them for his boss, the colonel. Interesting note is Warner was a confirmand and a disciple of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was willing to give his life for somebody else. Now, that didn't deter the firing squad. They just fired again and and killed the colonel. But that's helped me see these uh, people, the would-be assassins of Paul, in a different light. Perhaps they see themselves as heroic. Perhaps they see themselves as friends of God. But these friends of God end up becoming people who try to kill the messenger of God. Well, if they're the friends of God, what about the enemies of God? Well, there's a couple enemies of God and the people of Israel in this passage. One is a guy named Claudius Lysias. Uh, Claudius Lysias is a commander of the Jerusalem cohort, in the Jerusalem cohort, uh, there in Jerusalem, which means he's probably in charge of 600 or 1,000 Roman soldiers. And his duty is to keep the peace at all costs, to snuff out anything that looks like a rebellion before it can get started. Uh, Jerusalem in Jesus' day and after was just a powder keg, just waiting for the next would-be Messiah to set the whole thing off again. And finally, the Romans got tired of their soldiers coming back to Rome in body bags from Israel. So they clamped down, and Claudius Lysias' job was to stomp out a riot the first that he could smell it out. So when the riot breaks out, the first thing he does is he arrests Paul, and he puts him in shackles. And then it turns out he doesn't even know who Paul is. He thinks Paul's an Egyptian revolutionary. And then once he ascertains who Paul is, he still has him imprisoned. But for all the things that Claudius Lysias did to Paul, he saved his life. He protected him, and when the plot against Paul was made known, he he directed 470 soldiers, 200 cavalry, 270 others, to deliver Paul to Caesarea at night. So this enemy of God 
actually spent more time listening to God, to Paul and protecting Paul than did the so-called friends of God, the Jewish leaders. Well, what about this Governor Felix? Governor Felix um, um, had ruled in Syria, or governed in Syria before he came to Israel. He was stationed in Caesarea, which is a major harbor, uh, man-made harbor on the, um, on the Mediterranean. And there he ruled, and he ruled terribly and wickedly and licentiously. He had, had started out as a slave. And many scholars believe he was a slave to Mark Antony's daughter, and she freed him, and that's why his name is Felix Antonius. Well, however, he comes up through the ranks, he governs in Syria, he gets to Israel, and this is what the Roman historian Tacitus says about Felix. He's such a lousy governor, this is what he said. He said, Felix practiced all, ti- all kinds of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. He went through wife after wife. He uh, uh, did all sorts of terrible things uh, to people. That's Felix. And he rescues Paul and holds Paul in prison for two years and tries to get a bribe. He won't set Paul free even though he knows Paul's innocent because he's hoping somebody will come bail him out and he'll get the money. That's Felix. But Felix and Claudius Lysias, for all the negative things we could say about them, we have to say this. They listened to Paul on more than one occasion, and they saved his life. And those were the enemies of God. What are we to make of the story? Well, it seems two things jump out to me this morning. The first, the first one is this, that God can even use enemies of God to serve God's purposes. A cursory reading of the Bible will show time after time that people you and I would not consider godly. In fact, people you and I would consider against God actually get maneuvered by God into doing things that serve God's purposes. Let's take the story of Joseph, for example. Uh, Joseph is thrown in uh, to servitude by his brothers because they're jealous. And then he ends up in a guy's house and his wife, Potiphar's wife, throws away all of her morals and honor and tries to have an affair with Joseph. When he refuses, he gets thrown in prison. Well, these people, in their weakness, have put Paul, I mean, Joseph in prison, which is exactly where God needs him to be, so that he can be called forward, end up becoming second in command to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he ends up administering a plan that will feed a hungry world. People opposed to God actually can serve God. There's another one, a Pharaoh during the Exodus. He lets the people go, but then after the death of his firstborn, I I guess he reflects on that. He reflects on losing these slaves, and he decides to get revenge. And so this enemy of God will chase God's people all the way to the Red Sea, which is exactly where God wants him. And the Red Sea opens up, and Pharaoh's best and brightest are lost. And the Exodus, of course, becomes the seminal event in the entire Old Testament. God maneuvering enemies right where God wants them. And then there's uh, this wicked Babylonian king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, megalomaniac. Uh, just way overconfident. Very proud. Um, uh, he, he punishes God's people for their sin and carts them off to Babylon. Which is actually exactly what God told them was going to happen in Judah because of their sin. So God uses even the wicked Nebuchadnezzar. Well... A Persian king comes along. His name is Cyrus. Well, he's not showing up in the synagogue to worship. There is no synagogue at this time, but he wouldn't have gone if there had been. He worships the pagan gods, and yet God calls him my Messiah, my anointed one. And he uses this Cyrus 
to free all the Hebrew slaves who want to go back, and they go back to uh, Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. By the way, this is the temple that Jesus would later visit as a boy and worship in as a boy and a man. And yet, Cyrus is a pagan king. Stick with the story a little bit longer. Cyrus has a successor. His name is Xerxes. One night, Xerxes is roaring drunk. And he loses all sense of control. And in his pride, he wants to impress his buddies. And he has a beautiful wife. So basically, in his drunkenness, he calls her to come out and uh, dance seductively for all of his guests at his party. Well, she has enough dignity to say, no, I won't. And so in his drunkenness, he casts her down from her position as queen uh, of Persia. And then sort of has a Persian idol contest looking all across the nation for the new queen. And if you know the story, the new queen is Esther. Turns out, everybody doesn't know it, but Esther is a Jewess. And Esther, at the very moment that the Jews are about to be extinguished in the Persian Empire, lobbies her husband, and the people are saved. All because of a drunk king who tossed out his faithful life, and she ended up in that wife's place. All through history... God takes people even opposed to God, maneuvers them to help God. My favorite one, there's a guy named Caesar Augustus. He proclaims uh, a few years, uh, about 4 B.C., he proclaims that he is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. That's what he calls himself. And he, e- he issues an edict that he and he alone has the power to forgive sins. This is Caesar Augustus. He's so concerned about his wealth, his power, and his empire that he wants to make sure he collects every dime of tribute due to him. So he comes up with a plan to have everyone in the Roman world uh, go to their place of origin, their family of origin's hometown, and sign up for the taxation. Of course, it is his plan in his large ego and greedy desire that sends the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph, from Nazareth of Galilee to Bethlehem of Judea, where the Messiah is born exactly as the prophet had foretold it seven centuries prior to that. All through the scripture, we learn that even those who are enemies of God can be used by God. And so it tells us that no situation is out of God's reach, that nothing in our life and in our world is beyond God's power to redeem and to use. A good friend of mine graduated uh, the University of Texas in 1951. And he would say to me over and over when it came to times like these, uh, something that I've not forgotten. He would say to me, he would, he would say, David, no matter who's in Austin, Bob Wills is still the king. Now, I didn't even know much about Bob Wills and his band, but I got the point. I got the point that leaders come And they go, but there are some things that last. And, of course, what he was telling me is it isn't Bob Wills that would last. It is, of course, our God who lasts. And the other leaders come and go, but they can even be made to serve him. And we see this. Claudius Lysias and that terrible man Felix actually protecting Paul. Of course, there's a flip side to this story. What about the people who thought they were serving God? What about these friends These leaders, these good Methodists, the kind that would show up every Sunday. What about them? Well, they were found, of course, to be God's enemies as they tried to kill Paul. Why did they try to kill Paul? I think they were threatened. I think they acted out of fear. 
I think they acted out of worry. And Psalm 37 warns us that we need to stay away from worry. It only leads to wrath, to bad things. And they even resorted to deceit. They resorted to breaking all of the laws of God that they hold, held dear to get rid of this threat. And it reminds me that it's a pretty thin line between becoming God's friend and staying God's friend or being God's friend and sliding over to being an enemy. And it comes when I let my fear and my anxiety lead me to act in ways that are not in accordance with the ways that God would act. Eugene Peterson put it brilliantly a few years ago. He said, it's wonderful to, to bring Jesus' ends into the world, to do the things Jesus wants done. He said, but the key is we need to use Jesus' means. We can't bring good into the world by doing evil. It just doesn't work like that. When we do, we cross the side from friends to enemies. I'm reminded, as I thought about Dietrich Bonhoeffer this week, of a story you may have heard me tell from Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock is uh, one of my favorite preachers. He did some graduate study in Germany in the 60s. And he talked about when he was over there, he took a tour one day, and his tour guide was Rolf. And he was kind of doing the math, and he figured out that Rolf must have been a teenager when World War II was going on. So finally the tour was over, and he kind of pulls Rolf aside, and he said, Rolf, what did you do here during the war? And Rolf said, oh, those were heady days. Those were great days. He said, I, I was in a group. He said, we, we camped out in tents. And in the morning, we left the tents when the trumpet sounded, and we came out and we assembled and we sang a hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. And we prayed together, and then the chaplain led us in Bible study. And then we learned how to do different skills uh, during most of the day. And then after dinner, we assembled again, sang another hymn, prayed different prayers. The chaplain led us in more Bible study. And the next day we'd get up and the, uh, the trumpet would sound. We would gather. We would sing a hymn. We would, hear, we would pray. We would do more Bible study. And Craddock said, Rolf, that sounds great. What was your group called? And he said, Hitler Youth. Craddock said he thought about that. And he came to this realization. There are people who know the Bible but they do not know God. There are people who think they are friends, but when they use their fear, their worry, to turn to violent and destructive means to preserve what they know and believe about God, they've moved from friends to enemies.